I'm cool with some um, save yourself type moments. Some of them you can't escape from. Like last year, for example, I put my boat aground the first time I took it out into Georgian Bay. So uh, two years ago, we bought our first big sailboat. I had to sell it, unfortunately, last year, but we had a few months on Georgian Bay. And literally the first day I took it out, I ran it aground. Smart, I took it out by myself because I've had sailboats for a while. I know that something always goes wrong the first time you take it out in a new context. And so the last thing I was going to do was have my wife there with me, let alone her and my kids. So I took the boat out myself. It was beautiful. It was awesome. I was sailing along, and I knew there was a shoal somewhere nearby, but I thought I was south of it. And sure enough, as I'm going, all of a sudden just my 36-foot sailboat comes to a grinding halt in the midst of a shoal. And the fishermen, 200 yards from me, start laughing. Now, I don't know if you've ever run a 17,000-pound sailboat aground uh, in a shoal, but it's very difficult to get the boat off the shoal. But the fishermen weren't coming to help me, and so I had to save myself. And so I did. I won't go into the story because I would rather preach than tell you stories, but um, it was pretty touch and go. It was pretty touch and go. It, it involved me um, backing the boat up in full throttle for a second. It didn't really move. And then... Um, putting it in gear and putting it in full throttle. I'd never gone full throttle on the boat before. Uh, and then running up to the side of the boat and leaning out to the side as far as I could. Anyway, it was crazy. But I got the boat off the shoal, and I did not give the finger to those nasty fishermen. <laughs> That's sanctification right there. Sometimes you've got to save yourself, right? So that was a pretty hairy situation. I was right on the edge of something I could do, but maybe I can't do it. Okay, that's how serious it was. I was almost unable to save myself. Um, this leads me to think about salvation. It's one thing to save yourself from running your boat aground. It's another thing to save your immortal soul. It's a much bigger problem. And I wanted to ask you this morning, before we even got started, are you trying to save yourself? If you were to honestly reflect upon your life, the things that you have habitually done through the course of your life and your spiritual journey, would it be fair to say that by times... At least by times, let's be charitable. You have tried to save yourself. If, like me, you would admit yes, well then we better quit. Because today we're in Mark 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. <laughs> and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Okay, get a load of Jesus. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Exclamation mark. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother will surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is korban that is given to God. I'll explain that in a minute. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. It's no wonder they wanted to kill this man. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. 
There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? He's like, you still don't get it. You still don't get it for real. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Brackets. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Pretty comprehensive list. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and not anyone, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Get a load of this, Jesus. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, get a load of this, Jesus, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Iftacha, that is, be opened. Ah, And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. Woo! Celebrate! He oh, even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I, I could preach today. Excuse me, but this will not be the quietest I have ever been. <clears throat> Four things you can do to not be a religious idiot. There's your thesis. I'm like flexing already. I haven't even started preaching. Let's define the terms. Religion. Religion, a uh, personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. I hate it already. That's from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Want to hear it one more time, just so we get it deep down in our nasty soul? A personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. Simply put, religion is things that we do for God. Every religious system ever consists of things that a group of people have said you must do if you want to be right with God. It's a system of behavior that supposedly makes you right in God's eyes. This is what religion is. Religion is not Christianity. What is Christianity? I mean, simply put, Christianity is copying Jesus as we learn what it means to love God and love people because Jesus has first loved us. I'll say it one more time so we can get that term deep down in our needy souls. Christianity is copying Jesus as we learn what it means to love God and love people because Jesus first loved us. We are learning to copy Jesus. Okay? We don't give a at's ras about religion because religion is idiotic. 
You're like, what did he just say? I didn't say what you thought I said, but I said something close enough to what you thought I said just to make you uneasy. I'm going to do that a lot in today's sermon. You're like, I'm so glad I came to church. Okay, let me show you what I mean, that we don't give a rat about religion. Section 1.1, paraphrasing verses 1 through 13. What happens here? The religious elite show up, guys like me, trained to godliness from a young age, masters of the law, familiar with God's word, okay, established in positions of authority, connected to their knowledge of God and their family's long practice of religion. So guys like me show up, and um, they're picking fights with Jesus because his followers don't wash their hands enough. Like, you could quit right there, like, hands and cups and pots and vessels and couches, oh my. Hands and pots and vessels and couches, oh my. They, like, had a ritual for how to cleanse a couch. In fact, I should have them come to my house, because I have four kids that I raised on these couches. These couches need some cleansing. They've been puking on these couches, eating on these couches. My family lets my dog up on these couches. This is a bad situation, Right? We're going to cleanse this couch. Why? Because, well, if you sit on a couch that is defiled, then you will become defiled. To this day in Israel, every public washroom has in it a silver ewer sitting on the sink. So that if you are orthodox and you happen to be eating in this restaurant, you can go in, turn the tap on, fill the ceremonial ewer, so that when you're done, you can cleanse your hands with a clean vessel. So that your hands are undefiled. And the Pharisees are really upset at Jesus about this. Like, we think this is trivial. Because we're a bunch of Gentiles living 2,000 years removed from this controversy. But this is a very big deal. Why aren't your people doing what we expect? And this was a rigid expectation. We've been doing it this way for years. This is how we've always done it. Who do you think you are to be changing our traditions? I want to say to you this morning that Jesus is a problem for one reason. He's a problem because he's God. This is why Jesus is a problem. The law of Moses was given to God's people as a caretaker until the Messiah should come. In fact, if you really want to dig into the purpose for the law, the law was given to reveal people's sinfulness. For if there was no law, how would we know that we were transgressors? So the law was given as a caretaker and it is given to literally make you uneasy. It's given literally to make you realize that you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath. The law exists to awaken sinners to their sinfulness. The law was never given to make people ritually clean. I'll tell you something that did happen to make people clean. God the Son became a man to make us right with God His Father. Okay, let me explain the gospel to you. God exists. He made everything that is, including you and me. Everything that is, God made. And he made humans to be his friends. That's why you exist. That is the purpose of humanity, to be God's friend, period. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, the first two humans placed in the Garden of Eden by God himself, were given one command that had a don't do it attached to it. They had several commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Code for have lots of sex eat anything you want, make lots of babies, because I want a big family. Okay? That's like vernacular of what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. You're like, yeah, I want to follow that kind of God. Me too. 
But there was one command. See that one tree? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave it alone. Don't touch it. Even if you touch it, you'll die. The devil shows up. The accuser of the brethren. Our great adversary. The Genesis account has him showing up in the form of a snake. Says to them, I mean, did God really say? Because it looks pretty good to me. That fruit looks like it might make you wise. I, you know what's really happening is God's holding out on you. He knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. So why don't you just go ahead and try it? And they do. And in so doing, they sin against God. They rebel against him. They disobey. And as a result, they're cursed and banished from God's presence. And death comes into the human story. And here we have the great travesty that lies at the heart of the human story. We have these creatures made by God to be God's friends forever who have sinned against God. And it's not just Adam and Eve. All of us sin against God and each other all the time. You know it and I know it. And so here we have this race created to be God's friends who now can't be with God because God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin in any form, even more so because he's just. He must punish sin whenever he encounters it. And so by rights, he should just wipe us all out. But he's a good God and he's a loving father. And he did not leave us alone. But in the fullness of time, God the Father sent God the Son to become the man Jesus. So that at the right time, that God-man Jesus could go to a Roman cross where he would suffer and die. The penalty for your sin and mine. For the scriptures are clear that the wages of sin is death. When you sin, you deserve death. Doesn't matter how big, how little, doesn't matter what type, what variation. To sin equals death. And so Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh suffered and died in our place for our sin. And you're like, how could one man suffer and die for the many? Because this is God in a body we're talking about here. The one who framed the cosmos itself. I'm pretty sure he's big enough to take the sins of the world and bear them in his body. And God the Father punishes him in your place for your sin. But because Jesus Christ is God the Son, he does not stay dead, but he arises again that first Easter Sunday morning, triumphing over the power of Satan's sin, death, and hell, once for all in his body. And he appears to his friends, and he's really real. And then he ascends right in front of their eyes, back to the Father's right hand, where he sits down in victory, where he sits even now interceding for you, meaning he's your cheering section. And he'll keep doing that until he comes back someday to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom, which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. That is what Jesus did for you. And because that's what Jesus did for you, you don't need no silver ewer. You don't need no silver ewer, no more. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit Romans 8 1 through 4 Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God he is the perfect fulfillment of the law so stop bothering his people about hand washing okay stop it and he said to them well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their hearts are far from me In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he goes on to talk to them about this ridiculous tradition of Kogban. So here's what happened with Kogban. You're commanded to take care of your family. You're commanded in Judaism to take care of the poor. But these twisted religious people had come up with a way to avoid taking care of their parents. Because 
What if your parents offend you? What if your neighbor offends you? What if you're not in the mood to take care of the poor this month? Then all you had to do was take that set amount. We're so lame when it comes to our tithes and offerings, by the way. Okay? Judaism, 10% is the starting point. It grows from there up to like 28%, depending on the year. Okay? So they've set aside this amount that's meant to provide for the poor, for their family, for the stranger, for the orphan. But if they're not in the mood, for whatever reason, they can declare it korban. And what korban means is this is an offering I'm going to give in the temple. It is set aside for God. Therefore, what is set aside for God, I shouldn't waste on my neighbor. And Jesus says, with this twisted system, you've found a workaround, a cynical way of getting around the letter of the law, literally a sacred cow. Growing up in Israel, we would go to the beach every Saturday on Shabbat, the Sabbath. For Gentile, no problem. For Jew, it's a problem. Why? Because you can't make fire on the Sabbath. Starting a car, you're making fire because there's spark plugs. That's why Jewish people don't drive. Well, religious Jewish people don't drive on the Sabbath. Just to be clear, I grew up in Israel. I love Israel. Many of my friends are Jews. I love the Jews. I tend to say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is my father, and Judaism is my mother. Okay, so please don't take this in any way as an anti-Semitic thing, because it's not. This is an anti-religious thing. Because my religious neighbors, in order to drive to the beach on a Saturday, would place a bowl of water under the driver's seat. Because in the Talmud, the rabbis have set down a tradition that says, well, of course not. If you're traveling over water on the Sabbath, you're not transgressing the Sabbath. So they went, wait a minute, we can put a bowl of water under our chair, and we're traveling over water, therefore we're not transgressing the Sabbath, let's go to the beach. Just wait, I'm coming for your jugular in a minute. What religious system, practice, or habit are you guilty of clinging to at the expense of love practically shown to God's people? You want to not be a religious idiot? Um, stop it with the nitpicky, ultra-traditionalist legalism. If you're a Jesus person, this is how you live. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 37-40. Literally, I could not be a gospel preacher were it not for Matthew 22, 37-40. If Jesus himself had not distilled all the law and the prophets down to these two simple ones, love God and love people, I could never preach. Because you'd end up stuck in some arcane system of legalism or law or application of one or the other. You'd constantly be chasing your tail trying to figure it out. Whereas Jesus in his kindness reduces it to these two simple things. Love God and love people. Practically, the love of God and of neighbor compels you to do something. Then you look for the biblical pattern. Then you interpret and apply that biblical pattern with the law of self-giving love as the lens through which you examine it. Then you do it. Now, I don't have time to unpack it like I wanted to. I was going to have you throw out some examples of something you're like, well, what about this? Does anyone have like a really good one? What about this? Put up your hand if you've got a really good one, like a really good question. Like, well, how would we deal with X? No? Okay, I know I just sprung it on you. How do we deal with tithing? You look at it through the lens of the love of God in Christ, 
You look at it through the lens of self-giving love. You look for the biblical pattern. Biblical pattern is clear. You start with 10%, you grow from there. You're like, well, that's legalism. No, it's the biblical pattern. How do we interpret it and apply it? Well, we go, okay, what's our measuring stick? The law of self-giving love of God and love of neighbor. So, if the law of self-giving love, self-giving love of God and neighbor is our common denominator, would that seem to suggest to us that it's more logical to give less than what our Old Testament fathers and mothers gave, or more? What's the loving thing to do? To be less generous than the Old Testament pattern, or more? It's very clear. This applies to kosher laws. This apl- well, we could go on and on and on, but I'm supposed to be done in one minute, so we won't. The key for us as Jesus people is to have no more religion, no more legalism, just faith working itself out through love, in the words of Galatians 5.6. Why? Because it's what's inside that counts. We see this clearly illustrated in verses 14 through 23, section 2.2. Here's where Jesus says, um, look, nothing that goes into a person can defile them. Because everything that goes into a person goes to the stomach, not the heart, and then it is expelled. He thus declares all foods clean. In the English translation, it's in brackets. In the Greek, it's not. In the Greek, it's like literally like, thus he declared all foods clean. Okay? Nothing that comes into you from the outside can defile you. Jesus so far in the Gospel of Mark is attacking two things. He's attacking Sabbath laws, and now in Mark 7, he's attacking kosher laws, dietary laws. These are the twin pillars of practical Judaism. This was true 2,000 years ago. It is true today. Every Jewish friend of mine rejects Jesus because Jesus taught against the Sabbath and he taught against kosher laws and, to make matters worse, he claimed to be God. These are why my Jewish friends don't embrace Jesus as the Messiah. They're like, he couldn't be the Messiah if he said that we, don't, that we can heal on the Sabbath and that we can eat whatever we want because nothing defiles a person from the outside. And he said that he who had seen him had seen the Father. He can't be the Messiah. He's a heretic. Good thing we killed him. These are the two sacred cow pillars of Judaism to this day. And Jesus has zero tolerance for cleanliness rules. Now, here's where it comes to us. Because I was in synagogue yesterday, but today I'm in church. So here's where it comes home to roost in our hearts. Protestant evangelicalism is hugely guilty of this. We have a tradition that is a hundred years old, at least, of parsing everything in terms of do or don't do. It's okay to do this, but not okay to do that. Can I give you a few points from my history? Yes? You give me permission to be a little radical here? All right. In the Pentecostal churches in which I was raised, for generations it was okay for women to wear skirts but not pants. And then things got a little more progressive, and they said, okay, you can wear slacks but not jeans. And then things got a little more progressive, and they said, okay, you can wear jeans but not skirts that are above the knee. And then, you know, if you go to a charismatic church, half the women are in miniskirts, and they're dancing. And the Pentecostals run. I haven't even talked about the Baptists. What you can wear or can't wear. Um, What else? Oh, this is great. What you can drink or not drink. You can drink coffee, which has caffeine in it, but not beer, which has alcohol. That's not okay. Smoking. Let's talk about this. This is my best day. I'm so... Woo! Thank you, Lord. All right. You can smoke cigars, but not cigarettes. (laughs) Let's talk about dancing. Ah, you can do Jehovah Jireh, my provider is grace, but God help you if you drop it like it's hot, drop it like it's hot. 
Y'all said it. You can kiss her on the cheek, but not on the lips, and God help you if you stick your tongue in there. You can touch her arm, but not her butt. I'm just telling you the stuff I learned in youth group. Someday I'm going to write a book. Its title is Everything I Learned in Youth Group Was Wrong. I mean, you could watch Flintstones, but not Care Bears. Can you believe that I grew up with people who didn't let their kids watch the Care Bears? Or let's go one better. Ha <laughs> ha. Let's go to the reading. It's okay to read the Lord of the Rings, but not Harry Potter. Jesus has no patience for this. None. Nothing you eat can defile you. Yay, cheeseburgers! Nothing you eat can defile you. Thus he declared all foods clean. Don't miss, in the original context, how inflammatorily radical Jesus is. And by extension to us today, it's my privilege to say as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you, none of your religious systems or rituals that are meant to make you right with God are worth anything. Anything. Because, verses 20 through 23, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Believe it or not, the sermon gets even worse. Can I reflect dangerously for a minute here upon this sin list? Are you in the mood? All right, might as well. In for a penny, in for a pound. Mm-hmm. I said to Jeff this morning, I said, this is the kind of sermon that gets you fired or grows your church, one or the other. Of the things Jesus names in this sin list, do you notice how commonplace these are in you? Evil reasonings, which is sinful rationalizing. Adulteries, some of you are guilty of this, some are not. Prostitution, believe it or not, some in this room will be guilty of this, some are not. Murders, thefts, yes, I stole bubblegum cigarettes when I was six. More havings, which is greed. I would dare say every one of us in this room is guilty of this. Wickedness, which is wickeds, literally wickeds. Fraud, wantonness, (laughs) viewer wicked, (laughs) literally the evil eye. Envy. When you covet someone's wife, someone's job, someone's life, someone's Instagram account, you have the evil eye. Calumny. Slander. If you ever say something bad about somebody that's not true behind their back, you are guilty. Over-appearing, which is pride. How many of us are guilty of this one? I am guilty of this one. And pride is the worst sin there ever was. It's the sin of the devil himself. So I watch this one in my life constantly. Impudence. (laughs) Rebelliousness. Also guilty. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 There is no one righteous, no not one. Romans 3.10 All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah 64.6 And did you know that the filthy rags there are period cloths that have been used? That's how awesome your righteousness is. 
All it takes to kill religious idiocy is a half-honest appraisal of the relative success of your do-it-yourself righteousness. How's the whole um, save-yourself thing going for you? Hmm. It gets worse. Um, did you know, or better, some of you will think it gets better. Did you notice what's not on the sin list? Who noticed what's not on the sin list? <laughs> I know Anne-Marie did, right? I thought of you when I wrote it. I'm glad you're here. I was hoping you'd be here today. I'm taking my life in my hands. There is absolutely no mention of LGBTQ plus people, issues, concerns, or controversies in this sin list. Ready for your objections? <clears throat> well, it's not an exhaustive list. See how hard we try to cling to our religion? Okay, let me address that objection. Um, really? Did Jesus qualify it that way in the text? Did he say, I'm about to give you a non-exhaustive sin list? <laughs> well, <clears throat> maybe it wasn't top of mind for him. So why is it top of mind for you? So what are you saying? Everyone can just do whatever they want? I'm saying... Nothing you can do or not do will make you clean in God's eyes, but only what Christ has done for you. And if you don't think it's at the very least instructive that Jesus does not say homosexuality when he could easily have done so in a context where he covers adultery, prostitution, and just to make sure he covers all his bases, he includes the one lasciviousness, which is basically any time your sex drive gets out of control in a way that is not part of the law of self-giving love of God and neighbor. If you don't think it's a little bit indicative, then I think your perspective is pretty weird. Well, you just cross the line, Todd. That is just too inclusive for me. Okay, but section three, point number three, remember that the good news is for everyone, otherwise it's not good news. How do I know? Jesus is going for your jugular this morning because the next sequence in the text, he goes to the Syrophoenician woman. What is Syrophoenicia? It is a Gentile region north of the Jewish region of Galilee. So he goes into a region populated by people who are ceremonially, constantly unclean and excluded from the fellowship of God's family, and that's where he decides to go and minister. And when a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman, an outcast comes to him and begs him to heal her daughter who has been possessed by a demon, and there's almost nothing more disgusting in Judaism than a Gentile woman, but the only thing more disgusting than a Gentile woman is a Gentile woman with a Gentile daughter who has a demon in her. And she comes to Jesus and she begs him to heal her daughter. And what does Jesus say? Let the children eat first. It's not good for the dogs to take the food intended for the children. Basically saying, you Gentiles, you got to wait your turn. Because this bread I'm giving out is for the Jew first. And so you got to ask yourself this question. Is Jesus, you got to go like, really? Like, really? Is Je That's Kevin Hart, right? Like, really? Really? You shouldn't listen to Kevin Hart. Oh, really? Is he really saying Gentiles aren't welcome? No. Why would he bother going to the area of Syrophoenicia in the first place? No. Why would he commission Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 9? No. Why would he be the propitiation for the sins of the world according to 1 John 2.2 2, and not just for the Jews? 
So what's Jesus doing here? He is, just must point. He is challenging the Syrophoenician woman to discover her moment of faith. Yes, Lord, but. And it's not dogs in the Greek, it's puppies. Yes, Lord, but. Even the puppies under the table eat the children's crumbs. And our Lord says to her, for this you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Literally, her faith is in her butt. Y'all remember that one, won't you? Yes, Lord, but. You want to not be a religious idiot? I'm almost done. Remember, this good news is for everyone. Otherwise, it's not good news. And look, I love you, but I got to say it. If you are religious enough, that when you hear me say something that beautiful, remember this good news is for everyone. Otherwise, it's not good news. If the first warning light that goes off in your brain, bing, 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 is what about the elect? May I remind, and if you don't even know what the elect is, congratulations, you're less religious than me. But if there's anyone in this room as religious of me as me, you would have thought, what about the elect? May I remind you that only God gets to worry about the elect. We get to share the gospel with everybody from love. The gospel does not call us judge. The gospel calls us ambassadors. And so you leave the judgment to God. You let him worry about who's in and who's out. And you just act like everybody's in until you're proven otherwise. So in the meantime, share the love of God in Christ with everyone you meet. Let's leave election and reprobation and adoption at Jesus' feet. And instead, let us focus on, point number four as I close, getting comfy with being pretty up close and personal with Jesus because he's the Messiah. Worship team, you can join me on stage. Hallelujah! Don't you love, this is how Jesus heals the deaf mute? Did you see how weird and awesome this is? Pulls him aside, sticks his fingers in his ear. Literally in the Greek, it thrusts them in his ear. Pow! And then he spits. And in the Greek, we can't be sure if he spits on his tongue or spits on his hands and then grabs the man's tongue. Either way, it's nasty. And don't you love that a passage that started off obsessed with hygiene ends up with Jesus sticking his fingers in a guy's ear and spitting on him? Somebody shout! It's amazing because he is Savior. And they were super exceedingly astonished, saying, He has done all things well, verse 37. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And here, where if you know the Bible, this is where it's good to know the Bible because you know that that's code for He's the Messiah because you, like me, know Isaiah 35. And you, like me, know that then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. Ah, heck, I might as well finish it since I'm over time anyway for water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down the grass shall become reeds and rushes in a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it it shall belong to those who walk on the way even if they are fools like me and you they shall not go astray no lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it they shall not be found there but the redeemed of the Lord shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow 
and morning shall flee away. This is the promise that lies before you, church. Oh, man, I might as go all the way. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. You got a problem you can't solve, like how to save yourself. You don't need a better system. Get you a better savior.